144,000 Jewish evangelists are going to preach the gospel to the world, and there's going to be more people saved in that revival than in any other time in human history. And Satan hates the salvation of the soul. This is Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We've been in a study from the book of Revelation, and most recently our focus has been on the Antichrist, which is addressed in chapter 13. We've seen this part of the text refers to this coming Antichrist as a beast, and whose power is given him by the dragon who is the devil. Today, in a message entitled, The Devil's Deadly Duo, will be introduced to a second beast who we'll discover is the false prophet. Let's join Dr. Brogy now as he gives us a bit of a refresher to bring us up to speed. Take God's word this morning. Would you in turn to the book of Revelation chapter 13? One of the truths that God's people in the American church, I believe, are deprived of concerns the knowledge of biblical prophecy as it relates to the future of the world. Because we have exited largely what we call expository preaching, the doctrine of eschatology, that is the doctrine of last things, the doctrine that deals with the future, has largely been neglected and ignored. But as God's people, if you name the name of Christ, you don't need to go to some psychic to find the future. You don't need some lady to look in her crystal ball to tell you what is going to happen. Everything we need to know is found right here in the Word of God. God said in Isaiah, the 46th chapter, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish my good pleasure. God intended that we know what His purposes and His plans are for the future. And so as we study the prophets, whether it's the prophet Isaiah or the prophet, the apostle John, God is speaking through them to us. And God wants us to know the future, not so that we will be scared, but that we as His people might be prepared. And that's the principal reason we are unfolding the revelation together. Now, if you've been with us, you remember when we came to chapters 12 and 13, we turned a corner and the narrative dramatically changes. We're in the second half of the Great Tribulation. And in this section of the Revelation, God has been introducing us to seven key players, seven personages of sorts, so that we can understand the rest of the book. And right now, we're concerning ourselves with three in particular. The dragon, who's identified as the devil, the serpent of old. Secondly, the beast, who we often call simply the Antichrist. And then his false prophet. And these three form an evil trinity of sorts. Satan assumes the role of God the Father. The Antichrist assumes the role of God the Son. And the false prophet assumes the role of the Spirit. It's a satanic trio. And we will see that when they start, it appears like they are prospering, but the Lord Jesus will bring their rule to an end. Now, the events that we're studying will be of great concern for those who are actually living during this time frame in human history. But remember, this book was written nearly 2,000 years ago. The book of the Revelation was penned in 95 A.D., 
And so most of those who have benefited have actually already died and gone to heaven, those that knew Christ. But those who are alive during the events that are described will especially be pouring over this scripture. But we should too, because all scripture is inspired by God and it is profitable for teaching, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man, the woman of God might be adequately prepared for every good work. This is God-breathed material and it's profitable for you today. And Satan, of course, has always been the great enemy of God's people, whether they be Old Testament saints, uh, church saints, or even those future tribulation saints. And so we studied in chapter 12 how Satan fights against God and his people and that he often uh, uses people in order to achieve his means. But God gives victory through his son. Uh, Sometimes he uses a person like a Caesar or a Hitler or a Stalin. But there's coming a man that he is going to use in a profound way like he's used no one else in all of time. And just cutting to the chase, we typically call him the Antichrist. There are over 30 titles that are given to him in both the Old and the New Testament. But we spent three Sundays examining just verses 1 through 10 as we studied this man of sin, this son of perdition. And it's helpful to know how he functions because he is functioning with Satan's power. And so when you understand your enemy, you are better equipped to fight your enemy. Satan, of course, is a great imitator. He loves to duplicate that which God has done. Jesus is the real Christ. The Antichrist is the fake Christ. If you remember in the opening verses of the Gospel of John, the same one who gave us the book of Revelation, we're told, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he will write, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glories of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Which, in these two verses alone, we are encouraged and told that Jesus Christ is the living, breathing revelation of the Father. Which is why he then says in verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. We noted last time that the word explained is the Greek word that gives us our word exegesis. And a pastor is to preach the word, not his word, but God's word, and he is to exegete the text. He is not to be guilty of eisegesis, and neither should you be. You're not to read into the Bible something that God has not expressly said. You are to read out of Scripture. And there's a lot of preaching today where a text of Scripture is used where the point that is made has absolutely nothing to do with the text. Pastors who are guilty of eisegesis in order to make some psychological point or something else that they're trying to teach. Now, Jesus, in every sense, has exegeted the Father. He has explained him, which is why he can say to Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. It's why Paul tells the Colossians, as we read in the pastoral prayer, he is the image of the invisible God. It's why the writer to the Hebrews can affirm that Jesus is the radiance of his glory in the exact representation of his nature. Well, in some respects, the same principle could be applied to the Antichrist. Now, while the incarnation is a totally unique event, 
It's about as close as you can become. While Satan is not in the flesh in the Antichrist, he is nonetheless empowering this coming man of sin. And he is going to try to duplicate the relationship between God the Father and God the Son through himself, the dragon, and his coming Antichrist. Now, with that said, we're only going to go as far, and like the bulletin, we're going to go only as far as verse 15 today. You need to come back next week because next week is absolutely critical to your understanding the future and the rest of the Revelation. Revelation 13, let's read verses 11 to 15. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth and the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform and the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and had come to life. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Now, let me bring you into the context of our passage. Again, in the 12th chapter, the narration drastically changes. And God, once again, is giving us a behind-the-scenes view of what is happening during this time in human history. And again, as this chart reminds us, there are seven critical people that God underscores in these two chapters. We first looked at the woman who's identified as the nation of Israel. Then we saw the dragon who's specifically called the devil in the text. The male child that can only refer to Christ, the Lord Jesus, the Messiah. Michael, who's deemed the archangel. The rest of her children that is, those who flee into the wilderness, saved Israel, the beast out of the sea, who we typically call the Antichrist, and then today, the one that we're going to concern ourselves with, the beast out of the earth, also deemed in the Scripture as the false prophet. Seven different personages that are introduced to us either directly, like Michael, just the archangel, no symbol there, or it's given to us symbolically. And so we saw in the opening verse of the Scripture, in Revelation 1 and verse 1, if the Revelation, not Revelations, there's no such book. Don't call it the book of Revelations. There's no such book in the Bible. The Revelation singular of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. So the Father gave this revelation to the Son in the sense, not that he was learning anything new, because he too is omniscient, but he's given this revelation as that he is the one who is going to exercise it and unfold it. So he gave this revelation to show his servants, that's us, those of you who are born again, things which must shortly take place, and he sent and signified it. The first four words of the word signified is sign. He signified it, and that's the marginal reading in the New American Standard. In the body of the text, it says communicated. And the word communicated is a Greek word that means to give a symbol in a figurative way. It refers to giving information in a figurative way of sorts. And so people often ask me, well, do you interpret the Bible literally or symbolically? And the answer is yes. 
In other words, when there is a symbol that is in view, you are to find out what the symbol means, what it represents, but then you literally believe it. And so when Satan is called the dragon, he's not a literal dragon, but the symbol of the dragon because of his ferocious nature, he is identified in Revelation 12:9 as the devil. And so do I believe in a literal devil? You better believe I do. So John was given a message that was signified and critical to understanding the revelation is to keep reading because most of the signs are interpreted within the revelation or in the Old Testament. Daniel is critical to understanding the revelation because it gives us, especially in the ninth chapter, the schematic for the whole book. But the Old Testament, over 300 allusions to the Old Testament, and the 404 verses are woven all the way through this. And so, in the opening verse, we, for instance, spoke about this sea, and that is a symbol of sorts. And the word sea or water in the Bible can be used literally of a real, actual sea, or figuratively, or sometimes, as John will do, as both in a given context. We do that in English today. We speak about that sea of people to describe a mass crowd. And so Daniel and Isaiah and the Revelation use the term both literally and figuratively. And so we are told in the opening verse of this chapter that there is coming a man out of the sea, so to speak, and it's a symbol that we analyze that is used to describe the Gentile nations of the world. Of course, uh, we learn in God's Word that we are in a time frame known as the time of the Gentiles. The time's actually plural because it refers to successive kingdoms. The times of the Gentiles refers to that time that began with Nebuchadnezzar and up until the second coming by which Israel is under oppression. And so John highlighted four particular kingdoms, especially as they relate to Israel. There have certainly been other kingdoms, though the ones he highlights ever before they come into existence, especially relate to the Jewish people. And of course, the final kingdom that he highlights is the Roman kingdom, the kingdom of Rome, that will eventually come back at the end of time, he says, in ten parts. Ten nations, ten kings. Rome has never existed in ten parts when they were an international empire. But they will indeed in the future. And so there is this beast coming out of the sea. And ever since the times of the Gentiles began with Nebuchadnezzar, even until this day, the Jews have been oppressed. You say, but they're an independent nation. Yes, they are, but an oppressed nation. Half of all the decrees made by the United Nations last year were made against the people of Israel. And even as an independent people, the nations of this world are against them. I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. And so we asked and answered the question, if the Antichrist comes out of the sea of the Gentile nations, do we know what section of the world he comes out of? Yes, because it's articular. He doesn't come out of a sea, but you will notice he comes out of the sea. And we pointed out that this could not be the Galilean Sea or the Red Sea or the Dead Sea, but the 
great sea, what today we call the Mediterranean Empire. And that's further justified by what he says in verse 2. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard. He says it was like a bear, like a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. And so he uses the identical imagery of Daniel 7 to describe the Roman Empire that's going to be revived at the end of time. So here's a picture of the Roman Empire. The sea, of course, here is primarily the Great Sea, what we call the Mediterranean Sea along with the Aegean Sea. In either case, it's in this realm of the world that the coming Antichrist is going to arise from. And so you say, well, if he's going to come out of the revived Roman Empire, does that mean that he will be a Gentile? And I said to you last time, absolutely not. And I gave you four reasons why the coming Antichrist cannot be a Gentile, but can only be a Jew. The principal reason is that which Jesus made in John chapter 5. He said to his Jewish compatriots, the leadership of the nation, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another shall come in his own name, you will receive him. The Jewish people, for the most part, rejected Yeshua. He came to his own. His own received him not. And he said, because you rejected me, you're going to receive another who will come in his name. Another, two words, heteros and elos. If I ask you for a heteros biblios, you could give me another book, a book on science, geography, sports, anything you wanted. But if I ask you for an alos biblios, you'd have to give me another book like this. You'd have to give me a Bible. That's the word that Jesus uses. There's another one coming just like me. In what respect? In that he will be a Jew. I was speaking to one of my rabbi friends uh, yesterday in Israel, in Jerusalem, and I said to him, Hanok, uh, has there ever been Jewish people who thought for a moment that the coming Messiah could be a Gentile. He said, never. No Jew thinks that way. Never has, never will. Because the prophets wrote that he would come from the tribe of Judah and the family of David. I said, I just wanted to make sure. I said, that's my sense, though I read one article where some guy thought that uh, the coming Messiah could be a Gentile. No Jew thinks that way because it doesn't fulfill the qualifications. There's a reason this coming man of sin is called anti-Messiah. Messiah is the Hebrew word for the word Christ. The Jews believe their Messiah, of course, is yet to come. They're going to realize it's Yeshua. They'll look on him whom they have pierced, Zechariah the prophet says. They're going to realize in this time frame called the tribulation that Jesus is the one who indeed they should have embraced, but they will embrace him. But there's a reason he's called the Antichrist. He comes in the place of Christ. Now, verse 1 says he comes out of the sea of the Gentile nations. Verse 2 narrows it to the former Roman Empire. But we read in a prior chapter, in the 11th chapter, that the Antichrist comes out of the abyss. So one gives us the geographical location from which he comes. The other gives us the satanic empowerment that he receives. He comes out of the abyss and that his power comes from hell. He'll come in the place of Jesus. He will be like an angel of light, for that's what the devil often does. Now, I hope you know by now 
that Satan absolutely hates the Jewish people. There's never been a people in the history of humanity that has been more persecuted than the Jewish people. Let me give you five reasons. I haven't given you these yet. Five reasons why Satan absolutely hates the Jews. Number one, Satan, who's the prince of the power of the air, who's energizing the world system, he hates the Jews because they are God's chosen people. Moses reminds the Jewish people that God chose you, not because you were greater in number or better than other folks, but because God set his love upon you. God had to choose a people in which to carry out his plan, and those chosen people are the Jews. Secondly, Satan hates the Jewish people because they gave us the Scriptures. Every book in the Bible is written by a Jew. Some would say, well, Luke, who gave us the gospel, Luke and Acts, was a Gentile. I don't think so. Like many Jewish people who had Greek names in the first century, he was a Jew. Every book of the Bible, Paul affirms, was given to us by the Jewish people. Third, he hates the Jews because God gave, through the Jewish people, the Messiah, through Abraham, all the nations, all the peoples, every tongue, tribe, and language would be blessed because Jesus would die for all the nations of the world. And fourth, he hates the Jews because of what they are going to accomplish in the end of time. 144,000 Jewish evangelists are going to preach the gospel to the world, and there's going to be more people saved in that revival than in any other time in human history. And Satan hates the salvation of the soul. Satan, if you're listening to me today and you are lost, he hates you, he wants to deceive you, and he wants to take you to that place where he is going to spend an eternity. Now, that's the backdrop, and we're going to see how Satan uses this antichrist and this false prophet together in order to express his hatred against the Jewish people, but also to deceive the world. If you're taking notes this morning, I want you to consider with me this second beast, and I want us to first ponder the personality of the beast. In fact, two truths about his personality are packed into verse 1. The first concerns the disguise that he displays, the disguise that he displays. We're told here in verse 1, then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. Now, according to verse 1, the first beast came up out of the sea. But according to this verse, the second beast comes up out of the earth. And he is called here another beast. And again, it's the word alos. He's another in that he is of like kind as the first beast. He is a real human being such that when we come to Revelation chapter 19, at the end of time we'll read, and the beast, there the false prophet, was seized. Excuse me, and the beast, there the antichrist, was seized. And with him, the false prophet, the second beast, three times in the Revelation, is called the false prophet. So the beast, the Antichrist, was seized. With him, the false prophet, who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who'd received the mark of the beast. We'll study that next week. You do not want to miss next week's sermon when we explore the mark of the beast. It's going to be critical to your understanding the future events described in the Revelation, who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two 
were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. They both suffer the fate of all lost men where they are thrown into the lake of fire. And I emphasize this because I told you in the introductory sermon to the Revelation that there are Christians in the Reformed camp who say that the whole book of Revelation, with the exception of the second coming, was all fulfilled before 70 AD. That is basically a history book. Well, to make it a history book, you have to spiritualize virtually everything about it. But there's a theology they have that drives that. It's called replacement theology. Because they believe that God is done with the Jew and has been done with them since 70 AD. It's all history. It's called the preterist view, praetor, Latin for the past view. It's all in the past. Well, they got problems with the verse like we will read here in Revelation 19.20. And they, uh, of course, spiritualize the second beast, and they say, well, he's a kingdom. And uh, he is uh, a kingdom force. And, And we've already noted that even with the first beast, that the term the beast can refer to a literal person, or it can refer to the kingdom that that literal person represents. Well, the problem in their theology is kingdoms are not thrown into the lake of fire. People are. You just have to butcher the Word of God in so many ways. These are real human beings, beast number one, beast number two. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns. The beast coming up out of the sea, if you remember, had ten horns, whereas this second beast comes up out of the earth, and he has just two horns. And the first beast, of course, is more powerful in that he has ten, not to mention the imagery that is used in any first century Jewish person's mind. The beasts that were in the sea were far more ferocious than any of the land beasts, and some of those sea beasts, sea dinosaurs we call them today, were still very much alive in John's day. But lay that aside, we're going to see that this person, as the 17th and 18th chapters will unfold, is going to play second fiddle to the first beast. He is going to be his compatriot. This will be the devil's duo. They will work together, but he will give preeminence to the Antichrist. He is called the false prophet. I saw another beast coming up out of the earth and he had two horns like a lamb. Now, the first beast comes, and his kingdom is a political kingdom. But this man, the second beast, is called the false prophet because he's going to provide the glue that is going to hang that political kingdom together, and namely religion. And he is described here like a lamb. Now, remember, Jesus described false religious teachers who come dressed as harmless sheep, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. I mean, who's afraid of a little lamb? No one is. They don't scare people. They're gentle. They're harmless. They're innocent. Well, just understand that this false prophet is going to display himself as a lamb. Why? Because he is a phony. He is a fake but he is not harmless. Uh, Jesus said, don't be fooled by those who come in sheep's clothing. They may have the camouflage of a lamb, but they are representing a different kingdom. This false prophet will be disguised as a harmless individual operating in a religious realm, but giving acknowledgement in the political realm to the first beast, namely the Antichrist. 
Tomorrow we'll dig deeper into this false prophet's deception as we continue our look at the devil's deadly duo. To listen again to today's study, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV34. Search the Scriptures is committed to introducing people to Christ and to growing Christians in their love and knowledge of their Savior. You can join in this mission through a one-time or recurring gift. Just call 877-787-7478 or click the Give button online at searchthescriptures.org or using the Search the Scriptures app. Thank you. Tomorrow, Part 2 of The Devil's Deadly Duo. Join us then as we search the scriptures.